Welcome to the governance episode. Wait, episodes. This was initially scheduled as a single episode, but then it got long. So we have two episodes. This is part one. It is about the general concepts. And part two is going to be shortly ahead. And that'll cover a few separate FOSS nonprofits and how they structure themselves. Enough meta. On to part one. Hello and welcome to FOSS and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan. And my co-host Christine. Well, gosh, what is the topic of today? So today we are going to be talking about some FOSS governance structures that are available and out there. And if you listen to the podcast, you probably know that within the last year, both Christine and I have participated in founding a FOSS nonprofit. Each one of us did doing one respectively, with me doing Sprightly and you doing... Afteroid. So because of that, we have both been thinking a lot about what goes into governance structures and doing some research on it. So we figured we would share that with you. Right. And I mean, I guess the most general thing to open up with is, you know, like, why do you care about governance at all? Because after all, somebody can just do something like this on their own, right? Somebody can do something like this on their own, and a lot of people do. And it works well when you've got a smaller project, right? Yeah, and you you might even just have a few people jumping in and out, but it might just be something small, right? Yeah. And we'll talk more about that later, but... But the problem with that is that when it scales, if you start with no governance structure, and then suddenly you've got, you know, 50 or 100 or more contributors, then that gets difficult to adapt governance structure on the fly. Especially if you don't know about possible patterns that have already been researched. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about today, right? Yep. So we're going to start off with just kind of some of the general concerns that you want to think about when you are considering your governance structures. All right. Hit me with it. What should I consider? So first one, you know, if you're running a project that started off with just you and you're starting to have more contributors... Who has commit access? And that can, again, start with just you. And then, you know, as you decide, well, okay, this person seems like if they're doing a good job, you know, just kind of open it up a little bit more loosely, right? Yeah. And eventually you need to have more people to, like, review pull requests if you've got too many for one main maintainer to manage. And and related to that is kind of what's the process for getting in a commit, right? Which is, you know, you mentioned pull requests. That's very common. You might also have things like... Do we have unit tests? Does it pass all the tests before it gets merged in? Generally considered a very common good practice. Yeah. So on top of that, how are features decided? Again, this is really simple if it's just a single person doing it because that person just considers and then adds features. Right. And sometimes we end up with this term that's like, you know, benevolent dictator for life used in the free software community, kind of like as a tongue in cheek thing, Mm -hmm. which is the earliest, you know, kind of form of things of just, you know, one person, they're just deciding. Now, in reality, the shape between a BDFL and not a BDFL, actually, in most of the healthy communities I've seen, 
you know, as you start to get um, more maintainers on board and so forth, the conversations start to kind of develop organically where like people start to get a shape of like, okay, these are the people who are responsible for deciding X and pull requests and issues and stuff like that are kind of the most common place that people start out for deciding features. But we'll talk about some more stuff later. All right, so the next thing you want to consider is what license you're going to release things under. And actually, usually you want to decide this pretty early on. In general, when starting a FOSS project, you should have a license from the very start. So this is this has improved recently because like a lot of the, the code forges, air quotes, will often have that be something you do when you set up your repository. It's mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, hey, here are some licenses. You can pick one, and they might make a recommendation. Um, this is not going to be an episode that's heavy on deciding which kind of license. Usually you're going to choose something lax, like Apache V2, or you'll choose something, you know, copyleft-like, like the GPL. But th- this this episode, we're not talking about that in detail. We're mainly saying, you know, if this is a free and open source software project, you probably want something that's a free and open source software. I mean, you have to have it be something with a free and open source software license. And you have to decide that really early on. And if you don't, if you don't have a license early on, you are going to make trouble for yourself because you might get contributors who put code in the project and then nobody's agreed on a license. And now you have to go track them down again and get agreement. So do always choose a license as early as possible. So another thing, now that you're getting more contributors to your project or your organization you're setting up, it's really important to establish a code of conduct, right? If you've got a community of people participating, you want to make sure that that community of people is, you know, collaborating in a way that is safe and healthy for everyone. Yeah. And there's a lot that can be said about code of conduct, just as there's a lot that can be said about licenses. And in fact... There has been a lot, and, and I will link to one of my favorite talks by Ava Black about um, Code of Conducts. And I think that, the, in my experience, Code of Conducts um, do two things. One, they send a signal, and you know that this is a project that actually cares about this type of stuff. And two, they give a general idea of what ends up working or not, but they won't actually cover all behavior. And if you try to cover all behavior that is and isn't allowed... You might end up with like kind of rules lawyery type people. Mm-hmm. So that ties into the next consideration because if something goes badly, then what do you need to do? You need to consider moderation because having a code of conduct is great and really essential. But you also have to figure out what you're going to do to make sure that people are following that code of conduct and how you deal with code of conduct violations. Mm-hmm. And moderation, we usually think of it in the negative space, as in terms of, um, you know, the, here, here's how we end up handling things when things go badly. But you can also think of moderation in terms of stewardship of a mm-hmm. community, right? In which case, you're also relying on people to be able to create a positive space. And we'll talk about this more a little bit in a minute. But I think that it's important to realize that a really good person who's in this role isn't just creating a, okay, the bad things have happened, you know, here's the person who steps in to, you know, try to deal with the situation. You also want setting a tone that's positive in the first place for healthy, constructive community uh, communication. Well, and you also want to consider how many moderators you have, too, because if you only have one moderator and you have an international community of people, what happens if um, something happens while that one person is asleep? Now, we should say 
are getting into a lot of details, and this is going to be true through all of this. Again, if you're starting a project small, this is stuff you kind of scale up as your community exactly, grows. You yeah. don't have to chew this off all at once. You can kind of eat the cabbage or watermelon or a non-coniferous <laughs> version of things. You don't have to eat it all at once. You can eat it in pieces. Yeah. So we've already talked a little bit about some of the pieces of the hierarchy here. So we've talked about like the person who starts the project who may or may not become a benevolent dictator for life. We've talked about the moderation team. But all of these imply that there is some sort of structure to the hierarchy of the project. That's right. So usually you have maintainers of the code. But for example, in Media Goblin, we had a person who was really primarily in charge of the software stuff, which was me. And then we had a person who was primarily in charge of the communication stuff, which was Deb Nicholson. And then we had a a few different people who kind of cycled around on taking care of the infrastructure. So like, we're very used to thinking of this in a very code focused point of view, but this may actually, you know, kind of break out as you start to have different kinds of roles in your project. Do you have somebody who's in charge of interface design, right? And again, these things tend to kind of grow as your project grows. When we're talking about structuring the hierarchy, this is also something you want to think about as your project or organization grows again, because something that works when you have one or five or 10 contributors might not scale when you've got, you know, 100 or 500 or however many you get up to. So once you start having a larger community that's involved, you need to start thinking about for example, how you're going to appoint those maintainers or moderators or whatever, and how much community buy-in you have for those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So now that we have established a hierarchy for our hypothetical FOSS project or organization, you have to think about what happens if that hierarchy breaks, right? So you need some sort of succession plan. If someone stops participating and there's not someone else to pick up the roles that they were doing or you know in the worst case scenario someone dies or has some sort of uh, reason that they can no longer physically do their part what's going to happen after that yeah and note when we are saying hierarchy here we are not encouraging a air quotes hierarchical organization like as in terms of like some people being more important than others Uh, well and hierarchy doesn't have to necessarily be tiered you can have like circles of activity right so there's different ways to look at this yeah all right so now talking about this community there's oftentimes two different parts of the community right there are the end users, and there are the developers for a lot of FOSS projects. So you need to consider what kind of relationship you have between those users and the developers. Mm -hmm. I mean, this can vary depending on whether or not if you've got a software project that's a library, the developers may actually resemble the users a lot, right? They may be users of their own thing. And they ideally, actually, most software projects, the, the developers are users of their own thing. Yeah. It's not always the case, but it's often the case, right? And But it's not always the case that all end users are also developers. That's right. And you see kind of a squishy you know, kind of world between these things. So like in most applications, I think, you know, the line between users and developers is fairly rigid, right? You've got the people who are making the thing um, who may be users, but they are very separated from the people who are actually using it. But we'll we'll see some examples later where that starts to get squishier. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, if you're using, you know, Emacs, then your users kind of are developers by using it. 
But not by default, because I'm an Emacs user and I'm not an Emacs developer. Should we cut this part out? Is this a bit no, of a I think it's a I think it's a reasonable thing to say. And we've said on the podcast before that I was a FOSS user for like almost a decade before I became involved in like FOSS advocacy or any sort of governance or structure. Well, one of the one of the other things I'd like to highlight, and we're going to talk about Blender more later, is that in Blender we've seen a lot of the people who are developers currently actually started as artists. And it's because they had the ability to extend the software through simpler things like plugins and like uh, add-ons that may even and even things like their you know kind of their node system for, um, for the that users were able to extend it in some easier ways and then they were able to start kind of filtering into the other side of the software. Mm-hmm. So so one question might be if your users are interested in becoming contributors and we shouldn't just say developers because this yeah. also can include documentation, translation, translation, you know, all sorts of things. What's if if your users would like to be part of the project and trying to help build it? What are their what are their on paths and and I mean another really important on path I think is um, advocacy from your users right Are your yeah. users writing blog posts Are they making videos Are they talking at conferences about your stuff Are they telling their friends how they could be using this same software <laughs> That's right I think it's very important to have a healthy relationship between users and developers generally Yeah So that leads nicely into our next thing which is communication. So there's a lot of forms that communication can take, and we've got a couple of bullet points here for that. We'll start with kind of the more basic forms. So mailing list, IRC, matrix, the kind of standard ways that people talk person to person. And you kind of see here two different types of communication. One of them is a very... Sometimes people say synchronous and asynchronous. I don't know if that's really completely true. And there's kind of ephemeral and non-ephemeral. Basically, with like chat rooms, usually people are around and they're having a conversation kind of while the moment is there. And you might be able to scroll through the history, but like the conversation kind of fades away after the moment. Whereas things like mailing lists and forums, the conversation might restart after a couple of months, mm-hmm. right? And and it's easier for people who are international to be able to participate. But it doesn't quite have the liveness of communication that, like, a chat room does. Yeah. Well, and also mailing lists are often used as kind of, like, the organizational history of a project, too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you can cite a mailing list post from, you know, 10 years ago for some projects that is still relevant today. Mm Mm-hmm. So another thing is something along the lines of a developer's toolkit, uh, which is, like, you know things that help onboard new developers actually we really did not put something in our outline about documentation in general i was i was (laughs) just wondering is documentation part of the developer's toolkit i mean documentation is definitely part of a developer's toolkit and part of a user's toolkit right there's a lot of stuff about getting somebody onboarded also the tool like how hard is it for somebody to get started do they can they type one command from their command line to get started you know, and then if you, if they are, if it's developer oriented software, that might be perfectly good. Can they, you know, click to install something? You know, how hard is it from them to get to I'm interested to I am participating? Yeah. Right. And, and when you're considering that, you also want to consider levels of experience too, right? Like, so it's maybe really simple for someone who uses the command line on a regular basis to do a single command in the command line to install something. But for someone who has never used the command line or has only like occasionally used the command line, that's not quote unquote simple. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Leading off of that, there's also community meetings. Mm-hmm. So usually these are like voice or video or something like that. Or they could be a chat room, like, you know, yeah. people showing up and like... Occasionally you might have in-person meetings. And I mean, that that's kind of ties in with conferences, which we have a separate bullet point here. But yeah. like it, it gets like a bit squishy. The next three bullet points kind of squish together a little Let's bit. Let's just talk about them all at once. So what are the next couple ones? So... The the three bullet points in question here are community meetings, hackathons slash office hours, and conferences, which are all ways that your community can have direct involvement, you know, person to person. That's right. I think what's really important here is that these tend to involve a lot of live communication. They are often very good, well, in the ideal cases, for kind of lowering that level of hierarchy between Mm -hmm. things right you know kind of collapsing that stratification and allowing people to speak to somebody that they might not normally have an opportunity to speak to i know a lot Mm -hmm. of my friends and foss are people that i met at a conference or i started talking to at one of these events or something like that it's not that there's not a way to be able to speak to people otherwise it's that having a meeting is an opportunity and this can even be online, you know, it can be a, a voice call or something like that, or it can, you know, even be meeting well, in a chat room. Well, and we have those for the Foss and Crafts community, right? We have our Hack and Crafts, which are community meetings, and we have an IRC channel, which is our chat function. Yeah, our, our IRC channel is like kind of sporadic in terms of how it's... Sometimes activated. it's very, very active, and then sometimes we go through like long lulls. Well, Foss and Crafts is a bit weird because we're not actually quite a FOSS project but like we have some we're producing free culture material over here but um but 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 there is a user and developer relationship but i i mean there's a user user and producer it's different than most software projects right and and hacking crafts are interesting because they're people are not usually working on something related to our show Mm -hmm. i mean they or related to what the other people in the hacking craft are working on usually so I think one of the things that we're considering here by just collapsing these three bullet points into one is that while these have different structures, so community meetings, hackathons, and office hours and conferences have different structures to the interactions, it's kind of the interactions that happen outside of the structure that make these kind of glob together right the the hallway track version of all of these things i'm a big believer in the hallway track it's important for people to be able to kind of break out of you know and, and break bread together you know have a meal and, and converse and um but also like hackathons can be really great in that they're a motivating time to be able to produce something and this is kind of what hack and craft has to do with closer to any of these actually is you know being a time where people are motivated to build a thing right yeah but you have the emotional support of a, uh, of of a other friend network around. who's there but one of the differences with hackathons usually is that usually there's a targeted project and usually there's somebody there who is an expert who's willing to help people be onboarded right mm-hmm. and a transfer of knowledge so, so both hackathons office hours and conferences to some extent have the idea where there's someone with a like you know base level of expertise who's able to pass that on right office hours you specifically have someone who's there to answer questions conferences you generally have people who are there to give presentations and hackathons you typically have people with more experience working uh with you know people with varying levels Mm -hmm. of experience all right now we're going to talk a little bit more about the kind of like brass tacks of 
when you move from just a project to an organization. So first, do you have or do you need a board? So by here we mean, you know, like a board of trustees or like a, a advisory board or board one of, of the, directors. Board of directors. One of these types of things where there is a group of people basically who assemble and have some sort of conversation about what ends up happening. And those are different things, right? The board of trustees versus the board of directors versus the technical advisory board. Yeah, I don't want to get into it. Basically, do you have a committee that's deciding the direction of things? And these are generally people who don't have a financial interest in the organization. Not always. Well, okay. So there, if you, I mean, I'm on a board and I'm getting paid. Yeah, but you're... There are usually people on the board who work for the organization. Right. But the majority of the board are people who are not getting paid by the organization. It is true that they're in board bylaws. There are usually a lot of thoughtful considerations about the ways in which people are allowed to have money and everything. We didn't even talk about bylaws. Bylaws are like a whole other thing. Like that's that's getting into like setting up like the like the I guess like a serious business nonprofit and all the pain in the butt stuff you have to do to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? I guess this actually ties into another thing we have not put on here. Because we talked about the succession plan. One of the things we hadn't talked about was whether or not there are elections. Yeah. Right? Some organizations you have elections for these types of things that determine whether or not somebody goes on a board or some other decision-making group. Well, we touched on that briefly with the structure of the hierarchy. But yeah, for a board, typically you have some sort of community buy-in in appointing and or electing the board. And hopefully there's some level of objectivity. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of boards do start out as a specific group of people that are related to the organization and sometimes are continuing to be self-appointed, there are really, really tricky trade-offs in every version of choosing this kind of level of membership and governance and et cetera. And we are not going to get into the t- sticky details because they, we could do an entire podcast episode about that. There are also tricky things. Like if you end up doing some sort of democracy oriented type thing how do people how do you determine how many votes end up happening you know you'd like to say one and person who gets one vote. A vote yeah but then sometimes like in some of these things sometimes companies come in and they flood them with people and end up and there's like there's all sorts of risky things that can end up happening so you do want to be able to make sure that there is community happiness and buy-in. And that actually can lead to the question of like you know what's the transparency to the board's meetings is there a way for uh, people to, you know, how how does the community feel like they have um, access? And like Aftroid has done some of this stuff recently. Do you want to talk yeah. about what Aftroid did? Uh, yeah. So for Aftroid, the community kind of appointed candidates for the board. And then through a process of kind of lazy consensus, the community had time to look at the candidates and express their interest or concern in them. And then we had meetings with the people who were candidates, and those candidates then had a chance to determine if they were interested in serving on the board. And that's how we established the inaugural board. But we're also considering right now the process we're going to do for the next stage of the board, right? So we put term limits on the board members 
And in general, we're going to do two-year term limits, but so that we didn't have the entire board disappearing at the same time for this first one, some people did one-year term limits and some people did two. Yeah, so this is all tricky stuff, and it requires also that you have a breadth of experience enough in your community where multiple people are going to be able to, you know, like, can you actually have people moving in and out of those roles that have enough experience and there's lots of things here, really. Um, but one of the things I thought that after I was did that was interesting was permitting community members to attend certain board meetings. Right? Oh yeah, and uh, we we did that once we had like our statutes and roles and all of that stuff ironed out, and we had the all of the paperwork signed so that we officially were an organization. We opened the board meetings up to community participation. Mm-hmm. And there, once again, a lot of trade-offs here. Like sometimes it is useful to be able to have people are able to think and express more clearly when things are, example, not recorded. Mm-hmm. But there's also value to recording things, right? So mm-hmm. like, but one thing that when we get to not like the actual organizational structures of things, for example, 501c3 nonprofits, you have to at least have the minutes, right? Those can be cleaned up versions of what everybody ended up saying. Um, they don't have to be an audio recording or whatever, but there at least has to be some record of accountability. Yep. And those should be publicly available. And there are some like exceptions to that rule. For example, if you're talking in that meeting about something that is a sensitive topic and may involve, you know, vulnerable community members or something like that, then you can have those things kind of we- redacted or kept confidential. There's a lot of details here. You can have maybe a podcast series that would probably be pretty boring about like boards. <laughs> establishing governance. And establishing governance. So we're going to stop here. <laughs> um, and, and I and, also and move on. I don't think there's a universal set of good decisions here no. on, on many of these categories. But but let's keep, let's keep going. So what's next? The next thing is kind of the infrastructure. So... Where are you going to host things? How are you going to do version control? How are you going to, like, what kind of issue trackers are you going to use? Are you going to use a mailing list, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And at one point, this was, as we said, we're going to move to types of organizations. This used to be one of the main things that organizations would provide, especially umbrella organizations, is they would say, hey, we're going to provide you a place to host your source code and a mailing list and stuff like that. And nowadays, there are public forges, which are good enough for most people's purposes. And Mm -hmm. so people very rarely are looking to an institution to help them with this particular component. It's not that they're not necessarily going to, it's just that it's it's much more rare, right? But you do need those things in general to be able to have conversation. I mean, some of this is tied in directly with the communication stuff, right? Like issues and pull requests are kind of communication. Well, and also... Some of these are things that you need to consider very early on, too, like how you're going to do version control if you aren't using version control from the beginning of your project. Oh, well, we're, you know, so here's something that's interesting. That used to be a lot more common. These days, almost everybody just uses Git. It's become the default Mm -hmm. for that was not the case a decade and a half ago, right? Mm -hmm. There. I remember sitting in a room at the Chicago Python user group and we had an informal survey about what kind of version control people used. And I was using Git and sometimes subversion and the majority of people in the room, like there are still a lot of people using CVS and 
the largest amount of version control in the room at the time was still people just making numbered versions of files and tarballs mm-hmm. in their directory and just like copying that around. So like some of these things have become pretty streamlined and best practices, but weren't always. Yeah. And there are still projects that don't really. So I'm thinking more about like digital humanities projects where you have people who are not necessarily developers running digital projects and if you're not a developer you might not know that version control is a thing that exists this is a very code centric episode but i think this is it's worth pausing for a moment to say that all of these things can apply to a free culture project as well mm-hmm. but or a digital humanities project. or a digital humanities project which is probably a free culture project if it's within the scope yeah. of what we're talking about here yeah i guess unless it's just data um, mm-hmm. Whether or not you make a distinction between data and culture, I don't know. Yeah. But regardless, yes, you're right. Let me see if I've got what you're saying. Software now has a sense of best practice for these things. The rest of the world that may be collaborating in a fossey or free culture type space might not have those best practices yet. Exactly, yeah. So that's also why it's helpful to have things like going back to the developer's toolkit or documentation so that uh, there are kind of precedents out there that people who don't know how to set this stuff up have something that they can reference so they're not reinventing the wheel. Yep. So the next one is uh, a big issue that all of free software needs to consider and there is no good overall answer that works across the board and that is not not all if you're the individual developer just doing something one-on-one you might like just yourself you might not need to worry about this yet but yeah that's true well i mean so the next (laughs) issue is funding if you're the individual developer and you have a day job that pays all of your bills and you can do your project in your free time and never sleep, then you don't need to worry about funding. We all live in a world of limited resources, probably under some structure of capitalism. And so, but at the very least, the world does have finite resources. We exist within a world of finite things and human beings have finite time. Yeah. And so, yes, uh, you're right. Resources, including funding primarily, are important. Calories, too. You know, like, yeah. do you have enough calories, enough sleep, enough time? Yeah. How, how are you keeping the lights on and the servers running and, you know, your developers fed? Right. So I guess the simplest version of this you're highlighting is the one I was saying was the spare resources. Yeah. Right. That... So you're working on your FOSS project in your spare time. You have some other mechanism in your life that is allowing you to pay for housing and food and all of the essentials. Right. And that you don't necessarily need separate funding for your free software project. Yep. When you get to the point where you're trying to do your free software project as a full-time job. You you need to be able to figure this out, right? Yeah. You know. So we could do an entire series of podcast episodes about funding your FOSS project. And we are obviously not going to devote that amount of time in this one episode. So just kind of briefly touching on different options. We have the kind of things that individual projects do uh, as kind of like starter funding things. So you could do services for development or actual physical things. You may end up doing project hosting if it's like a, you know, kind of like web servery type thing mm-hmm. or you know actually you know charging for developing a feature or something like that or uh, if you're doing an open hardware project you might you know 
sell the actual physical project. Right. And a lot of projects just have, you know, some sort of donate button that, you know, most frequently uses PayPal as horrible as an organization as PayPal is. Yeah. Or something Mm -hmm. like Stripe. Yeah. Something like that, you know. Some sort of please give us money button. Yep. Then there is the kind of recurring donations for your project options like Patreon or LiberaPay or Open Collective. Yeah, Open Collective lets you donate in a couple ways, but I think this is kind of the most common way that people end up using it is that. Whereas Patreon and LiberaPay, I think, are more explicitly for, like, I want to support this person on an ongoing basis. Yes, uh, which, good time to shout out to thank all of our patrons <laughs> for this podcast. Right. You also might do a crowdfunding campaign. We did one of these in Media Goblin in conjunction with the Free Software Foundation. You did two of these in Media Goblin. Two of them, actually, two of them. Um, And crowdfunding campaigns kind of combine some of those things. You have a general, like, call for people to donate. I mean, you do usually get some sort of thing out of it. You usually have some sort of tiered reward. So you get a keychain if you do this much. You get a tote bag if you do this much. And But the, the big thing about them is that usually there is a, a fixed amount of time to be able to make the thing happen where you have some sort of goal that you want to be able to hit. And um, then maybe some sort of stretch goal. Right. And it turns out this strongly resembles a different, moving from kind of the individual projects that kind of aren't under an institution, um, this starts to resemble more um, something that we do see at a lot of nonprofits, and what's yeah, that? A lot of the organizations end up doing like supporter drives, typically end of the year in December. Um, the FSF is famous for being one of the few organizations that is very driven by its supporter drive. Um, so Conservancy also has a significant supporter drive, but you know also gets a bunch of its funding through grants and stuff like that. You know, and, and the, the supporter drive is important in, in these institutions um, as a public support test, but also in terms of being a very general form of funds. But I think what's also interesting about it, for the FSF's case, it's they're kind of unusual in that they've been able to make the majority of their funding, I believe, actually off of individual donations. Yeah. And let's riff off of that onto the conservancy approach, which you mentioned, which is the supporter plus grants. Oh, I think and, I think we already kind of covered that. Do you well, think? I want to talk about the difference between grants and supporter because grants typically are awarded for a particular thing, right? You get a grant to work on copyleft enforcement. You get a grant to work on a specific thing, whereas supporter drives, it's more of like an open pool of funds that you can use for the organization overall. That's true. That's true. And I mean, I guess also there's also things like organizational sponsors and stuff mm-hmm. like that kind of tie in in a similar way. But but you're right. Grants tend to be very focused. And so supporter drives, one of the advantages of them is that they, they're they very general funds, usually, that are able to allow an organization to be able to accomplish some of the things that they really need to be able to accomplish. And also keep the lights on. Yeah. And then there are kind of more direct donation supporter drive approaches. So one of the things with conservancies is that they have, like in the FSF also, is that they have this idea of these, you know, being a supporter as this kind of, there's a tricky thing with the term membership 
in uh, U.S. Uh, nonprofit law, I think, because I believe that membership actually kind of like it implies voting and a bunch of other governance things that are not necessarily what these organizations mean. You'll mm-hmm. notice that Conservancy uses supporter. The FSF uses associate membership. The term membership is not actually used. But, you know, but there is this sense of like kind of like you are, you know, kind of like registered as a specific kind of entity. And what's interesting about like Wikimedia is that they... I don't believe, if I remember correctly, that they they are not as focused on having, like, you know, you are a Wikimedia supporter. Instead, the big thing that they have is you're visiting some Wikipedia page and it's like, gosh, don't you want to help us keep the lights on? Here's the donate button. Well, and I think Internet Archive does this, too. Right. Where you're using uh, using the Internet Archive as a resource. And then it says, hey, would you like to donate? Yeah, the Internet Archive does this also. I think they do do a something closer to a supporter drive i mean these are really squishy they're they're all kind of the same thing in some ways except that there is different knobs is in terms of like do you show a progress bar with a specific goal or does it just show up on something uh, on a resource you're already using and it says hey like this resource yeah give us some money do you get some sort of virtual or maybe even physical badge that says i'm a member of this thing you know people will often say um you know like i'm a card carrying member of the aclu or something like that right Mm -hmm. you know so something like that yeah and then there's the approach where you have you know a place to download the software and then next to that download button you say hey do you want to donate since you're downloading the software and I guess we did say this earlier with like a PayPal or donate button or whatever. But I guess what's really interesting is that there aren't these many of these projects that have gotten like super funded by it. But I think that there are a couple that have been really able to take advantage of where it's been leveraged. I believe LibreOffice is one of those. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. At one point, I think, you know, basically it was a strange thing is that that free and open source software was largely funded by Windows users going and clicking download and then they'd see the donate thing and mm-hmm. they do that there it can also be in the software itself right there can be a thing that says hey you know you love the software don't you want to donate yeah and then you can take a multi-step approach where you do kind of like a combination of these things so we're gonna talk about this organization a lot more in the next episode because we think it's very interesting but um the way that Blender does it is pretty interesting in that they do have general donations, but they, the, they've kind of transformed their general donation thing. Like we used to do the once a month donation where they just had it coming in through PayPal. And then they actually also used to do the, you know, you donate for getting a physical thing in this crowdfunding type way where they'd fund the open movie projects that way. But nowadays they have something that's closer to a membership thing where they have the thing called the Blender Cloud. And like, it's a really good deal. You like donate like 11 bucks a month and they give you access to all this stuff you technically legally could have access to anyway because it's all free culture licensed. You know, like all of these, you know, open movie project things and all the assets and everything like that. And training manuals and stuff like that. But it's all in one place and it's actually, you know, they've they've got some more things that they don't expose publicly normally, even though you could legally copy it. But you basically get access to this by by some sort of uh, membership thing of signing up for the Blender Cloud. But they also get funded by some institutions like, you know, all of the major graphics card companies, I believe, are basically paying for Blender development because it's the default benchmarking software basically these days and also 
everybody wants to use it for um, 3D modeling and for animation and stuff like that. So they, they all want to make sure that it works. And so they do some sponsored work, but they also do training, right? So they have an interesting kind of multi-pronged approach where they're able to get a lot of interesting stuff done. And that's not even including... So I'm going to say one more thing about the Blender thing. It's not even including the external stuff that's happening, right? So there's like the Blender eShop where a bunch of add-ons, which are actually free software, and maybe the authors don't even always want them to be, but because of the GPL, they, they make them free software anyway. And they are behind this kind of like you have to pay to download to get that add-on. And they're often really nice things. And um, people are paid to, you know, make this, this stuff. Um, but that's like kind of external. And of course, a lot of game studios and stuff like that, and a lot of movie studios and everything like that are also using blender and actually paying for adding features and may have in-house people working on features to be able to improve what they need so blender is just kind of interesting for kind of the breadth of the things that they're doing i think yeah so moving on from funding even though i mean there's so much more we could say about funding but moving on because we have a finite resource of time one of the main reasons that you might want to consider forming an organization as opposed to just a uh, project is legal considerations. So who holds things like trademark? Who can hire a lawyer for the project? Who's legally responsible if, you know, someone tries to sue the project? Or if your or your project is trying to enforce its copyleft. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. So these are things that you don't necessarily come up against towards the beginning of your project, but, you know, multiple years down the line when you've got a lot of users and maybe other people who are trying to profit off of your brand name, these are things that you might have to consider. Mm -hmm. And the next one is engagement. How do you keep your contributors motivated to continue contributing to your project? Yeah, so... A lot of people might not might be kind of surprised to hear this said as an organizational thing, but I think that a good project considers motivation of its contributors and the kind of composition of its community to be a very important thing from the beginning, especially when projects have a lot of volunteer capacity. It's really important to make people feel like they want to be spending their time and their resources and etc. And like even if you are getting funding and you're paying some of your developers and some of your designers and stuff like that, a lot of the contributions will actually be from volunteers. Mm -hmm. And why do they want to do it? Heck, actually, even if people are being fully paid at their job, even then you want people to be motivated. Yeah. You don't want to have a little morale for the people. You want people to be excited to contribute to your project. You want, yeah, you want them to feel loved and participating and, you know, like they're part of something exciting. And this can be everything from the way that you communicate, right, which we've talked about quite a bit, to also things like, you know, like what is kind of your branding of things? Mm -hmm. You know, we did a lot of this in Media Goblin. and What kind of support do you have for contributors? So if they feel like they're just alone working on things and don't have any support, then they're going to be less motivated to continue working maybe than if they had a question and one of, you know, the more seasoned developers was there to help answer questions. Yep. And then finally, so for most FOSS projects, a lot of the thinking behind these things involves some sort of kind of ethical framework 
or aspirational goals for the public good, for how this is going to be used and stuff like that, or at the very least for minimizing harm. What would society look like if we had this wonderful software? Exactly. So maybe, I mean, this is probably something that you're thinking about from the outset if you're doing a FOSS project, but definitely by the time you get to the point where you're thinking about setting up an organization, you want to think about the kind of ethical framework and how you want the organization to continue. Mm-hmm. Well, we had planned this as a single episode, but we're at, you we're, know, we are well over half an hour. Let's say that one. So we're going to we're going to continue this this whole conversation with part two. And in part two, we're going to talk about the different types of organization strategy you can have or governance strategies you can have for FOSS, mostly nonprofits, but we'll get a little bit into other options as well, and then give some example organizations. And finally, at this point, we're going to thank our supporters uh, of on the Patreon. So it's been a while since we've read through our supporter list. Um, So we decided we're just going to go through the entire list again, especially since we talked about fundraising in this episode. So it seemed like a great time to thank our supporters. So in the supporter tier. Thank you to Ernst Rolick, Andrew O'Brien, Benny Chernovsky-Paskin, Marty McGuire, Brian Small, Vijay Gopal Marupundi, Coda, Rob Fuller, User, Schlee, Chris Barnes, Jamie, Matt Arnold, Ursula Kerdali, Mark Waylard, Benjamin Slade, Mike Swerzik, Ellen D, Alexander Shendi, James Valeroy, and Charles Stanhope. In our mega supporters tier, thank you to Peter, Robert Gale, Claire Rodriguez, Ian Kelling, John Stachecki, Dan Connolly, Daniel Finley, Lotus Echo, Ava, Jonathan Fredrickson, and Deb Nicholson. And finally, in our ultra supporter tier... Thank you to Jeff Smith, Matthew Panhands, and Benjamin Goring. We are grateful for all of your support. Thank you. Bye! FOSS and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty.
I, I'm a big believer. <coughs> big believer in coughing noisily in our presentation. Can't even. I can't even say words. I'm very tired. All right. So I'm going to take another sip of coffee. Maybe that'll help. <coughs> Jeez. <laughs> the cat's sitting right behind me. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's try again. Holy moly. I don't know. Maybe I'm rambling too much. Should should I be quiet? I'm. I've I've rambled beyond. I've rambled beyond. Rambled beyond my capacity to ramble. And we will pull up that information and deal with that later. Bye bye.